You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, good evening, church. Good to see you. I hope you're having a, having a good week. Well, two or three weeks ago, I heard from a man named Dale, and um, I met with Dale last week. Dale lives right down the road, actually, just behind the old Valleydale Church property there. And got to know him, and just a fascinating guy. And uh, when Dale was younger, he was in his 19, in the 1980s, he was a young college student. And uh, he was going to another church, and he was in the congregation one day, and he looked up in the choir loft, and he noticed a really pretty young lady up there singing in the choir loft. And uh, the welcome time came, and he kind of, you know, kind of gave her an awkward wave during the welcome time, and, and she thought... Um, well, I think he's kind of cute, but what kind of a guy waves at somebody in a church service? And um, uh, eventually they met. Her name was Gina. So Dale and Gina, Dale and Gina met, and they fell in love, and they began dating for uh, about four years, and they finished college and were married in 1988. And so they were both working. They both had I had uh, come from Christian homes. They, they were both Christians. So this just appeared like a match made in heaven. And about two years in, they had their first child, a, a young boy, and eventually they would have a, a daughter. Uh, and so they started off really well. Uh, they were both serving in their church. Dell was a deacon. She was singing. And they taught a young marriage Sunday school class. So, man, from the outside, everything looked great. But then things started happening in their marriage. Uh, communication was not very good. They um, just started fighting a lot. By 1996, things were, were really bad. Uh, there was no love. There was no joy. There was no relationship. In just a matter of eight years, they had gone from being so in love to no relationship at all. And the fighting got so bad, one day, Dale pulled out uh, the suitcase from under the bed, and he put it up there, and he started putting his wife's things in it. And he said, I'm going to play golf. When I come back, come back you need to be gone. And so um, the relationship was over. And what had started out as just an incredible uh, love, marriage, relationship uh, had ended. Um, well, they thought it ended. They went to, they both got lawyers. They were consulting with lawyers. And, and so then they were just, they were staying in the same house because they didn't want to abandon the children. And they began provoking each other. Uh, Gina put on a uh, tape recorder and would try to, get, try to make him angry so she could get something on him. This was crazy. All of this was going on in a house where people were so in love at one point. And uh, unfortunately, and sadly, that's not that uncommon. You, you probably know of situations. Maybe some of you have been through something like that. Um, but you, you wonder, you, you hear that and you go, what, where did it go wrong? At what point did, did things start to just derail and, and start moving the other direction? And uh, unfortunately, we're, we are familiar with marriages that lose their love, but have you ever heard of a church that lost its love for God? Have you ever known a church that just lost its love? I mean, it started out just on fire. There was a vision. There were people getting saved. But at some point, the church just lost its love for God. And it was doing things, but you could tell there's not a whole lot of love for Jesus here. There's just, there's just kind of motion. There's, there's dead works. 
Um, and so I want to I want to talk to you about that tonight. What what does it look like when a church loses its love for God? Um, I'm going to just begin a series tonight, and Pastor will probably go a different direction next week. But when I'm with you, I'm going to be going through the seven churches in Revelation for the next however long it takes us to get through that. So I'm going to start tonight in Revelation two with with the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. So Revelation two. And we'll, we'll do that one tonight, and next time I'm with you, we'll, Lord willing, we'll move on to the church at Smyrna. So let's look at the church in Ephesus. And uh, boy, what a church this was. And so, you know, you know the book of Revelation, and uh, it was, it's, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about who he is. It's about his power, and it's about his plan for the future. So if you read the book, there's a lot, of, a lot of things you'll read and you think, man, what in the world does that mean? But if you just flip over to the end, you see Jesus is coming back and he will reign on the earth. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and uh, it, it all ends well. And so um, we get a, a glimpse of Jesus in Revelation chapter one. He's got a long robe. He's clothed in this robe with a golden sash around his chest his hair, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And so th- this was the, the, the vision that, that John had about Jesus. Now, this is John, we believe, who was the disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And John, we've, history tells us, John made it to Ephesus uh, with Jesus' mother, Mary, he lived there, and then uh, because of persecution, he tells us in verse 9, he was sent to the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was about 10 miles long, uh, about 6 miles wide at its, at its widest point, and it was just southwest of Ephesus out in the Aegean Sea. And so that's where John was. He was there for about a year or two, and we believe it was in about 95 A.D., when John received this revelation and wrote down. So John is probably in his 80s or 90s by this point. And he writes what, what the Lord showed him is going to happen. And so, um, uh, so he, th- there's a word that Jesus has for these churches. Now, all of these churches were in what, we, what at that time was called Anatolia or Asia Minor, which today, as you know, is Turkey. Isn't it interesting to think, there were some uh, vibrant churches for Christ in a 90-something percent Muslim country now. It, it's, it's wild to think about that, but that's where, that's where these churches were. They were all in Turkey uh, on, the, on the western side. And so uh, it's just interesting. So Jesus said to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the first thing we have to, you have to figure out is who is the angel is this a, a, a real angel or is this a human messenger? And I believe it's a human messenger uh, because the, the actual term means messenger. And then there's a couple other places in Scripture in Mark 1, verse 2, Luke 7, 24, where it actually refers, the word refers to a human messenger. So I believe this was a human messenger. It was the pastor of each of these churches that that this revelation was given to. And the pastor would take this revelation and he would stand before the church and he would read it to the church. And so, uh, so Jesus says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So you have to go up to verse uh, 20 of chapter one to figure out what he's talking about. 
the seven golden lampstands, or I'm sorry, the seven stars are the angels. So I would interpret that those are the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus, in his hand, he has the pastors of the church. So Colossians 1 teaches that Jesus is the head of the church. Okay, so Jesus is in charge of this church. He has a firm grasp of these pastors, and he's walking us in the present tense. He walks among these churches. So Jesus has every idea about what is going on in these churches, just like he does here. So he's walking among these, these, these seven churches. And I want to I just share with you six things that this church of Ephesus did really well. I mean, if you were living in Ephesus, you probably would have joined this church. You th- I mean, these are six things that they, they did extremely well. But there was one thing that they were missing, and it was, it was crucial. Okay, so, but first let me tell you about Ephesus. Ephesus was located in between two mountains, and it was known for its harbor. There was a river that flowed um, right up to it, and or really close to it, and would flow out into the Aegean Sea. Um, the population, we think, was between 100,000 and 250,000 by the end of the first century. It was one of the top five cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was really well known. It had one of the seven wonders in the ancient world there, the Temple of Diana or uh, the Temple of Artemis, if, if, uh, as the Greeks knew it. And so they had this huge temple, and the temple was about 425 feet long. It was 60 feet high, and that was the first thing you would see as you would go into the uh, Ephesus. You'd see this huge temple. And inside this temple was uh, an artifact. is a sacred relic to um, Diana or to Artemis. And so there were thousands of priests and, and, and priestesses at this temple. There was uh, prostitution, all kinds of things going on there. And so um, if, if you want to really know about Ephesus, you have to go back to the book of Acts. When Paul was on his missionary journey, Priscilla and Aquila were left, after they left Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila were left at Ephesus. So we think they were the ones who planted this church in about the 50s AD. So John is writing in 95, I believe. And so about 40 years after this church was planted, that's, that's when this letter was been, uh, Revelation was being written to this church at Ephesus. And so um, you can read in, in Acts 19, you remember the theater, there was a riot and, uh, and Paul wanted to go to the theater. The theater sat about 25,000 people um, and just, it just, it's just fat. The history of this is fascinating, but one reason the city declined because today Ephesus is not inhabited. And so one reason it declined is because there was a lot of erosion and the, the harbor filled in with silt. The soil began to fill in. And so today, if you go visit it, unless you have a really trained eye, you can't even tell where the harbor was. All you see is just ground. You just see dirt. And so over time, this harbor filled in and it, and it disappeared. And so today, Ephesus is located about six miles from the Aegean Sea. And so, um, but man, during its day, it was a thriving city. What a great place to plant a church. And so um, Priscilla and Quilla did, and um, they were off and running. Now, uh, Jesus knew the works of this church, verse 2. Jesus said, I, I know your works. And uh, this term for know means full and exact knowledge. It means, it means Jesus had complete knowledge. He knew everything about what they were doing. 
There was nothing hidden from him, just like there's nothing hidden from him here. He knows exactly what we're doing. He knows exactly what we're not doing. But he said, I know your works. And then, and I, I find six things, six of these works that we're going to talk about. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll explain those to you. The first is, I know your toil. And so I'm going to call this, they had, this church had a very good work ethic. This was one of the, the first of six things that it had going in its favor. They had a very good work ethic. He said, I, I know your toil. This word for toil means to engage in activity that is burdensome. It's used in a couple other places in the New Testament, just talking about evangelism and discipleship. It means to work to the point of perspiration and exhaustion. So these were not lazy Christians. Man, they were out there spreading the gospel. They were discipling people. They were engaged in ministry. This church, they, man, they were toiling. They were working for Jesus. Um, man, that, I mean, that's the kind of church that you'd want to be a part of. The second thing, this church had patient endurance. They had patient endurance. The term for patience, it refers to uh, being patient with circumstances. They were very patient with the circumstances around them. Remember, they lived in, the, in, a, in, in this pagan city. Ephesus was a, really a melting pot of, of Greeks and Romans and, uh, or, or um, I'm sorry, Jews, Gentiles. It was, it was just a real mixture of people. And, and so there, there they were in the midst of all that. And the term for patience means to remain under. They were able to remain under with this weight of persecution, this weight of ridicule, this weight of, of um, threats, whatever it was, they were able to remain under that, to stay standing underneath that. Temptation, immorality, all of those things. Jesus said, you know, you've been able to patiently endure those things. So, man, they had a patient endurance. That's a great quality. Third, the church had a passion for purity. It says they could not bear with those who were evil. Uh, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't tolerate evil. They didn't, they didn't try to change their standards and accommodate their membership policies, change their membership policies to accommodate the culture. They, 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 stayed, they stayed committed to their doctrine. They stayed committed to the word of God. And, um, you know, in Galatians 6.2, it says Christians are to bear each other's burdens but, but here, they're, they're, not, they're not bearing or they're not tolerating evil in their congregation. So, um, and they stood for truth. So, man, they had some good works. They had um, patient endurance. They had a passion for purity. Uh, man, this, this church has got a lot going for it. Uh, they cannot bear with those who do evil. They don't, they don't even tolerate it. Number four, the Ephesian church had a high standard for leadership. The Ephesian church had a high standard for leadership. This is in verse, um, the second part of verse 2. But have tested, this is part of Jesus said, I know your works. So one of their works was, you have tested those who call themselves apostles. Now there were some who would go around, you remember the original apostles that were with Jesus, and then you had Matthias, and then you had Paul who encountered the risen Christ. Remember on the road to Damascus. Those were the original apostles who had spent time with Jesus or had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And so because of what had happened, remember if you read in the book of Acts and what Peter, James, and John did, the miracles, the, the power that would go out from them, there were many who would say, um, hey, I'm kind of envious of that type of power, so hey, I'm an apostle. And, and the church would go, ooh, you're an apostle? 
And so they would, it would, they would be elevated in the eyes of others. And so there were, there were people who were doing that. Say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm an apostle. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys. And this church didn't just take their word for it. This church tested it. They, they examined them. They, they took time to say, well, let, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's, let's really, let, let, let us, let, let us check, check you out a little bit. Uh, tested means a thorough examination. And so that, that, that's what they did. They, they examined these, these men to see, are, are they really apostles or are they just, are they just tricking us? Um, and, and that would have taken time. It would have taken effort. Um, you know, some of you are involved in, in hiring people in the work you're in. It, it takes time to hire people, right? You've got to research. You've got to check references. You've got to interview and all of these types of things that are, that are very helpful and are necessary, but it takes time. So here's a church that's willing. They could have easily said, oh, you're an apostle? Man, come on in. We'd love to have you. Just come on. You want to preach? You just open the door right up. And, but, but, but they tested them. So they had a high standard for, for leadership. Uh, man, what a, what, a, what a great quality. Fifth, the Ephesian church possessed perseverance. In verse 2, the Ephesian church said they had, said they had patient endurance, did not put up with evil. So those same words, patience and bear up are used here as well. Now, we're not told exactly what, what they put up with here. It could have been the, the false, false apostles could have ridiculed them. They could have complained. It could have been something going on at the temple. We're, we're not told. But whatever it is, it says that um, you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Now, this is the same phrase where Jesus used in Matthew 10, 22. Remember, Jesus was about to send out the 12 apostles. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And uh, he said in verse 22, he said, they would be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. And Jesus says here, hey, you're patiently enduring things for my name's sake because they are associated, they're followers of Jesus. And because of that, they're enduring persecution. They're enduring hatred. They're enduring mistreatment. And Jesus says, hey, you have endured this. And you have not grown weary. You haven't quit. Man, you're enduring this persecution. They could have easily said, hey, I'm done. I'm going to this congregation over here. I think I'll go back to Judaism. I think I'll go back to the temple of Diana. But, but they, they have not grown weary. They had not given up. They were, they were enduring. They possessed per- perseverance. They were still in the game. So, man, this, they got a lot going for them. Um, the, now, the sixth quality, you have to skip down to verse 6. And then we'll go back to verse 4. But the, the, the sixth quality that this church had going for it, Jesus says, uh, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's, it's hard to really know who the Nicolaitans were. Uh, there's an early church father named Irenaeus who lived in the second century, and he wrote that they were followers of Nicholas, who was one of the seven mentioned in Acts chapter 6. And... Um, we don't know if Nicholas deviated from the truth or not, or if, or if just people who were associated with him did. But nonetheless, if you read later uh, in Revelation 2, uh, it mentions the Nicolaitans, and right after that it mentions Balaam. And the, the two sins that were associated with Balaam were immorality and idolatry. So apparently the Nicolaitans were saying, hey, you can engage in all these, in immorality, idolatry, there will not be any consequences. Just do it. If it, if it feels good, just do it. And, um, 
And so they, but it says, you hate their works. You hate the immorality. You hate the idolatry. It was, it was sin. It was, it was, it was false teaching. And, um, and they, they hated that. And so Jesus says, Hey, I, I hate that too. But yet you, you have this going in your favor. You hate the works of the Nic- Nicolaitans. Now, those are six things that the Ephesians church had going for them. That's a pretty impressive list, right? If you, were, if you were there, and if you were visiting there on a Sunday, and, man, you would probably hear correct doctrine. You'd, you'd, you'd hear, you know, high standard for leadership. There's perseverance. There's a lot of great things going for this church. And so it's, it's so easy just to, 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 to move past that. But this church was doing a lot of things really, really well. But... Verse four, but first word in the sentence, I have this against you, Jesus said. And whenever the God of the universe says, I have this against you, that's, that's not good. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. This term for abandon means to move away with implication of causing a separation to leave, to depart from. In 1 Corinthians 7, 11, it refers to divorce. You've walked away from God, he says. You've got, you're doing all these things right. Man, your doctrine's right. Your perseverance is good. But you've, you've left your first love. It means to give up, to abandon, to move on. to. You just moved on to something else. Something else is more attractive now. Something else is just wooing your attention. They had let go of their first love and moved on to something else. Who is their first love supposed to be? Remember what God said in Deuteronomy 6, 5? You shall love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so first here, first love probably refers to the love they had for God right after they were saved. But they no, they, they no longer had that type of genuine love and fervor that they once did. And so it's talking about the first days of their salvation. Right after they got saved, man, they were on fire for Christ. They were, they were bold. They were, they were in love with Jesus. And they were, they were filled with the love of God. But, but, but over time, their love had grown cold. And they just, they had, you know, they, they were fine just to know some correct doctrine and doctrine's important. They were, they were, they were, they were, they were okay just to attend church. And so Paul wrote this, um, um, and Paul, and we think Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians in, in um, 60 to 62 AD. And the last verse of the book of Ephesians, it says this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul, I mean, just right after the church had been planted, he said, man, you guys love Jesus. and You have an incorruptible love. But less than 40 years later, Jesus says, you have abandoned me. You have abandoned your first love. So that first generation uh, man, they, they had it. That first generation was on fire for Christ. That next generation came along. They didn't have that spiritual fervor for Christ that the first one did. They had a lot of good activity, but they were not doing it from a heart of love. One source wrote this, loving devotion to Christ can be lost in the midst of active service. You remember what it was like when God first saved you? I mean, just, just think back for a minute. Do you remember 
There's, there are three that I can remember. There's been a lot of, of kind of high spiritual points, but there's three in particular that I remember really well. The first was when I got saved in college, and there was a, just a fire. There was a fervency. Man, I wanted to, to talk to people. I wanted to spend time on the Word. Just couldn't get enough. There was about three years later, slightly under three years later, I surrendered to ministry. Man, there was a, just a passion, just a freedom and excitement. Man, God's up to something. And then um, about uh, in 2000, early in 2003, I was up one night reading and praying in Genesis 22. And God convicted me of a couple of things. I confessed it. And man, I was, I was, I was so excited because I knew God was working. And God put, a, put a, really a call and a, a passion in my heart for missions that I didn't have before. And so later that summer of that year, I went on my first mission trip. And then about a month or two, maybe a month and a half, two months later, I met Courtney, who was a missionary. And then later that year, got to go on a mission trip where Courtney was in Lebanon. And I just wonder, man, what if God wouldn't have changed my heart? What if I wouldn't have surrendered those things? I would have had no interest in, in going on a mission trip, much less dating a missionary. And so there, those are three just kind of high watermarks where, man, just passion, man, I want to talk about Jesus, you know, and I wish I could tell you, man, every day it's been like that, but it, it hasn't. Even though I spend time with the Lord every day, there, there are days I do it out of duty instead of, instead of love. And if you're honest, you'd probably say the same thing. You say, you know, sometimes it's just a routine. Sometimes it just feels more like a duty then it feels like, man, I just love Jesus, and I can't wait to spend time with him. And so you know, you know what I'm talking about. You, you've, you've, you've been there too. Maybe some of you are there right now. But the good news is there's a solution. So Jesus tells them, this, this is where you are. You've left your first love. But I'm grateful that he didn't just leave them there. He gives them a solution. He gives them a three-step solution. Verse 5, he says, um, Remember, it's a command. It's a present command. Remember. Now, this is just not a, this is not a nostalgic remember. Not just, you know, just remember the good old days, and it'll never be that way again. But just remember. That's not what he's talking about. He says, remember for the sake of change. Remember what it, was, what it used to be. Remember that fire you had in your heart for Jesus. Remember that and go back and do it again. Go back and recapture that. Go back and, re- and revisit that. Go back and let that, be, let that be characteristic of your life right now. Don't just, don't just remember and say, well, those days, are, those days are gone. It'll never be that way again. No, no, remember and go back and let that be true of you again. So re- remember, it's a command. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, that's the second thing. Repent, turn. The word means there's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Think differently. You got to think differently. Man, this, this is wrong. It's not okay just to go through the motions and play church. It's, it's, it's not okay. I need, to, I need to be loving Jesus. I need to be communicating with him. I need to, have, I need to be telling people about him, but I need to be doing, doing it from a heart of love, not from a heart of duty. And so it means to turn from their sinful condition. And they needed to adopt a new lifestyle. Then, then the third thing, he says, and do the works you did at first. Now, what, what has fascinated me about this, this study in this passage, that word for works right there is the same word in verse 2, where Jesus said, I know your works. 
And then we, we, we listed those six things. It's the same word in verse 5. He says, I know your works, which those were good. Then he says, and do the works you did at first. So it's not just what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. That's what he's saying. Go back and do it, but do it from a heart of love. Don't just go through the motions. Go back and do what you were doing then because then your heart belonged to me. That's what he's telling the church. Go back and, 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 and serve me and do your correct doctrine, do your perseverance, all that, but do it because you love me. I can say words to my wife and she can tell when I'm saying things uh, genuinely and she can tell when I'm saying it because I'm her husband and that's what I'm supposed to say, right? I can say the same exact word. I can say, you look really nice. And she knows, is that a genuine compliment or, or and I've heard this so many, you're just saying that because you're supposed to say that. She has said that to me so many times, which means uh, maybe I'm not being genuine. I thought, it, you know, I don't know, she knows me better. But I'll say, hey, that looks really good. But she, can, she knows when it's real. And, and, and so, you know, you can serve. We want you to serve here in all these areas. But God knows your heart. He knows if you're just serving out of duty or he knows if you're serving because you love him. And he's not impressed with your service. He's not impressed with my service. He's, he wants a heart that loves him. He wants a heart that serves him that says, Jesus, I'm serving you because I love you, because you have saved me, because you've changed me, and I'm so filled with gratitude, there's nothing else I can do but just offer myself to you. That's what he's looking for. And he says, so go back and do those works, but do it from a heart of gratitude. Do it from a heart that loves me. And so he says, if not, if, if, you, if you're not going to remember, if you're not going to repent, if you're not going to do those works, you're not going to change, if not, I will come to you. Now, we don't talk a lot about the if nots, you know, but, but God is a holy God and he is a God of judgment. And so because he's holy, he has to judge because he has a certain standard. So he says, if not, so there, this, is, this is a warning that judgment will come. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, the term for remove, he's not talking about losing their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. The term remove does not mean destroy. It means to a gradual movement that results in the loss of the place the church once occupied. He's, he's saying, you're not going to lose your salvation. You're just going to lose your influence for Christ. Okay? You're, 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 Jesus said, remember when Jesus said, uh, a city on a hill cannot, cannot be hidden? You're, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. So believers in Christ, we're to be the light of the world. That's who we, that, that, that's who we are because Christ lives in us. And Jesus says, I will come and I will take your lamp and I'll just move it on down the street. I'll just go to another church somewhere that loves me and I'll just put my lampstand right there. You know what, what fascinates me about this is you have Ephesus, one of the most top five cities in the ancient world, had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, very strategic, large city. And in spite of all that, God says, I'll just remove your lampstand. In other words, your little church is not a threat to the kingdom of God. My kingdom will go on whether you are going to participate or not. 
So either Ephesus, you get in line with what I'm doing, or I'll just move somewhere else. And I'll just, I'll put my, you, you are not indispensable. There are other churches who will obey me. There are other churches who will love me, and I'll just put my lampstand there. And so um, it's a warning. It is a warning for them. It is a warning for us. You know, it's easy to think, well, God just needs us. God doesn't need us. God will say, well, I'll just go right, I'll find another church in Birmingham. If you're not going to love me, I'll, I'll just put my lampstand somewhere else. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It just means we lose our influence. We lose our influence for Christ. Uh, now, I believe God has a plan for this church, and he wants to use this church. And I believe he is using this church. But we have to make sure that we're, we, are, we are serving him, and we're coming, we're serving because we love him. Not because, man, I've just got a duty, but just because, you know, so-and-so won't quit asking me, so I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. Do it out of love. Man, we, we, you know, do it, do it because you love him. And so, somewhere down the line, now, what, what's interesting, there's, the repent is used twice in verse 5. Okay, so if you look to the bottom, he says, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless... You know, unless you otherwise, unless you repent. So the second time repent is used, it's used in a mood it's called the subjunctive. It's used in this mood that, that, leaves it, that leaves the answer up in the air. In other words, the answer was not clear. We, we don't know at this time whether Ephesus is going to repent or not. They, they, they may repent or they may not. So they had a choice. So, so Jesus says, I'm not going to make you do this. I'm going to give you the choice. Either you're going to repent or I'm going to remove your lampstand. And at this time, we don't know. But I, I believe they repented. And the reason is because about 10 to 20 years later, a man named Ignatius, who was one of the early church fathers, uh, he wrote a letter to the bishop of Ephesus. And this is what he said. He said, talking about the church of Ephesus, he said, you live according to the truth and no heresy dwells among you. In fact, you will not even listen to anyone who does not speak about Jesus Christ in truth. So as far as we know, this church heeded this warning and they remembered, they repented and they did the works they did at first. However, somewhere down the line, things must have changed. Because in the 11th century AD, the church disappeared from Ephesus. By the 14th century, there were no longer any inhabitants in the city. Today, no one lives in the ancient city of Ephesus. The silt took over the canal and Islam took over the country. They had a choice. We have a choice. Verse 7. He who has ears, who, I'm sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, does that sound familiar? He who has an ear, let him hear. That's, that's the call of Jesus. Remember? And uh, this is used a number of times by Jesus. But one particular time in Mark chapter 4, verse 9, Jesus talked about the seed that fell on the path. Remember, there was a, there was a rocky path. There was thorns. There was, um, there was good soil. Um, you, had, you had the four different, the four different types of paths. Then at the end of that, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if anybody's willing, or if you'll just listen and respond, the, the invitation is open to anyone, anyone. And so John here is given the call of Jesus to the Ephesians church. He's saying, hey, the, the decision's yours. 
If, if, you, if you want to respond, if you want to repent, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to stay where you are. You can repent. You can, you can go and everything will be different. You can, you can go back to the way it was and you can have that love relationship with Jesus. I mean, so he says, listen. That's, that's what hear means. He who has ears to hear, listen. You know, God has made his truth known and now it's up to their church. It's up to us to respond it's a, it's a word for us. So, um, and I, I'm all about correct doctrine, uh, opposing evil, uh, high standards for leadership. Yes, 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 on all six of those. But God's primary relationship is, or his primary interest is our relationship with, with him that is built on our love for him. So our service, our passion, everything flows because we love him, right? So God's looking for our love, not our duty. He's, he's not, not impressed by our service. He's not impressed by, you know, whatever else we're doing. He, he wants to see our love. And, and to look at the rest of the verse. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so um, the term for conquer, uh, we actually get the term Nike from, from, this, from this word. It, it means to, it's a military athletic uh, image. It means to, to, to be victorious, to overcome, to prevail. It comes from the Greek goddess of victory, which is Nike. And so um, the one who, who, who conquers is the one who has received Jesus. The one, because Jesus conquered death. He conquered Satan. He conquered the evil one. And so when we receive Christ, now we are the overcomers. We are the ones who, who have conquered because of our faith in him. And so his victory now is our victory. So the, to the one who conquers, to the one who's received Christ as Savior, Jesus says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? That goes all the way back to Genesis. Remember? It was there. Adam and Eve couldn't, they couldn't eat of it. They got, they got kicked out of the garden because of their sin. But if you now, if you flip to the back of the book, in Revelation 22, in the New Jerusalem, you see the tree of life. The tree of life represents eternal life. And so the, Jesus said, so the one who's received me, I will grant to you eternal life. And Revelation 22 talks about 12 different types of fruit that'll be on the tree of life. And this tree is in the paradise of God. And remember, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, in heaven, in the, 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 the dwelling place of God, which eventually will become the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. And so he says, the one who believes in me, you will be the one who spends eternity with me in heaven. And so the way that happens is not through the tree of life, but through the other tree we know is Calvary. Through the tree of Calvary, the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus has made paradise possible for all who has ears to hear and who respond with faith in him. Isn't that interesting? Well, Remember Dale and Gina? When we left their story, it was pretty sad. So they were, for 15 months, um, it, was, it was a prison, really. Their, their house was. They had two kids, and they're fussing and fighting. And uh, the judge finally said, well, okay, you have joint custody. So now they're trading off on weekends, and, they're, and every time they would drop the kids off, there felt like their hearts were being ripped out. And it, just, it was just a reminder of the death of their marriage. So this went on for a little bit. And finally, 
Gina called uh, Dale at work one day, and they started arguing again. And then Gina, just through tears, she just had a moment of vulnerability, and she said, Dale, what have we done? Why don't you come and get me, and let's try to fix this thing. And she had no idea. Is he going to laugh at her? Is he just going to, how is he going to respond to this? And she, at the time, did said, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know, I don't even believe, I don't even, I'm not even sure I believe this can happen. Well, Dale hung up the phone. He was in tears. God had been working in both of their hearts. And he got to the house as fast as he could. Fifteen minutes later, he's knocking on the door. Gina answers the door. And he said, Gina, I don't know much about anything anymore, but I do know this is the right thing to do. And so they decided we're going to work this out after they'd already been divorced. We're, we're going to work this out. They started going to counseling. God began to soften their hearts. God began to heal their hearts. And on De- December 21st, 1997, they got remarried. The day they got remarried, their son got saved. He said, my parents are back together. I want to get together with God. And they got saved. He, he got saved. On Valentine's Day of 1998, just, uh, you know, less than, I guess, two months after their marriage, remarriage, they, they were asked to share their story at church. They shared their story. And a young lady came up in her 20s, and she said, hey, thank you so much for trusting God with your marriage. She said, I, I too was two year old, two years old when my parents divorced. And she says, I've never gotten over it yet. So thank you for doing the hard work. So thank, thank you for, for letting God work in your marriage. And at that moment, when that lady said that, they realized, hey, maybe God is calling us to have a ministry to, to young families and to marriages. And so a number of years later, they started, started a ministry called Stained Glass ministries. And now they travel and they speak all over the place and they just tell how God has used and restored their marriage. But you know what? They had to repent. They repented and they turned around and God restored them. And so I want us to close just a little uniquely tonight. We're going to, they're going to play a song overhead in just a moment. There's, there's been a, just as I've been working on this, uh, there has been, there, you know that praise song, I don't, I don't know all the words, but the, uh, one part of it is, Jesus, we crown you with praise. You know, remember that song? I love that song. But in there it says, we love and adore you. We bow down before you. But the love and adore you part comes first. I'm loving you first, and then I'm going to bow down before you. So I'm not, I'm not serving you. I'm, I'm, I'm serving you because I love you. And so I want us to, they're going to play that song and I'm not going to say anything, but if you, you want to come up here and pray, that'd be great. You want to stay where you are. That's great. I'll close this in prayer when we're done. Um, but I, I want you just to, just to think, ask the Lord what he's saying to your heart. Um, my prayer, my hope is that Valleydale will be a church that is known for loving Jesus. We can be known for a lot of other things, but my hope is that when people come here, they think, man, those people love Jesus. That church just loves Christ. They love God. And I want you to be, I want to be a believer 
that loves Jesus. I want to do my work because I'm just so grateful that God has saved me. And so um, let's, let's play this song, uh, Brock, if you can, and um, just spend some time with the Lord, meditating on what he may have shown you tonight. I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that you love us enough to uh, convict us of areas in our life that are not right. And uh, Lord, you know, in my heart, I was, have been convicted. There's things I do out of duty sometimes, Lord, instead of love. And, and I just confess it. I have confessed it. I just ask you to forgive me. And I, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that, uh, Lord, you would speak to them and encourage them. Father, we, we want to be a people who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So would you help us to do that? Forgive us, Father, when we are, love other things in the world, when we get distracted, and uh, we ask you to have mercy, and thank you that you love us enough to show us those things. And, Lord, we do repent, and we want to be a church that is known for its love for you and its love for, for people. And we, we sense that, but, Lord, that's where we want to stay. And so, uh, Father, would you just give us a great rest of the week? Would you give us a love for our, our city, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, and uh, for our family members, and help us to show the love of Jesus to them? We pray for our pastor that he would return safely and that you would put the, the message on his heart that you want us to hear on Sunday. And, Lord, we tell you now that we'll respond in obedience to whatever you tell us to do. So thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.